Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Tammy Gillis, an actor you might have seen on shows like Supernatural, Less Than Kind, Continuum, Reaper, or J-Pod. You might also have caught her web series, The Support Group, which she produced and directed as well as popping up in. And she's terrific as a restless woman who leaves her husband and son for... something else in the new film Menorca, which is playing theatrically in Toronto and Winnipeg right now. Tammy picked Bridesmaids, the 2011 blockbuster comedy starring Kristen Wiig as a struggling baker drawn into a war of passive-aggressive escalation when her best friend picks someone else to be her maid of honor. Wig, who co-wrote the film with Annie Mumolo, heads one of the great contemporary comic casts, featuring, of course, the phenomenal Melissa McCarthy in her breakout performance as the terrifyingly competent Megan. Both Wig and McCarthy were nominated for Oscars for their work here, Wig for original screenplay with Mumolo and McCarthy for supporting actress, but I'd argue that Paul Feig was overlooked in the Best Director category as well, because sure, the food poisoning sequence, but there's so much more to Bridesmaids than its gross-out gags, even if that one was truly spectacular. This is someone else's movie. It's one of my go-tos when I have time or I'm bored or I'm kind of bummed out. It's the first time I saw it, like I nearly peed my pants watching it. It's just so funny. And these women are so brilliantly comedic. Um, and I find that every time I watch it, there's something like a little different that I didn't notice. So it's definitely by far one of my favorite movies because there's also just so many women in it. Yeah. I, well, I guess the first point to clarify, when did you see it? Did you see it theatrically? Did you get to see it? I saw it was? theatrically when it came out. Right. And that's when I was like crying. I was laughing so hard. The one scene where, you know, she's in the street in her wedding gown and she loses it is just like, I couldn't believe they did that. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I saw it with an audience at, at a preview screening, I guess the Wednesday night or the week before it opened when they let the critics come to public previews. And it, yeah, the room exploded a number of times. The, the, the film has this, because it's a little long and it's a little sad at the beginning, a little melancholy. And I think people weren't quite sure what rhythm it was going to have. And right. then once the room clicked into it, yeah, it just played constantly. It mm -hmm. was these huge laughs, low laughs, kind of quiet little moments of appreciation at the, the sequence where Wig bakes the perfect cupcake. Oh. Um, <laughs> and people were sighing. And it's like, oh, this movie has them. The audience is like, yeah, totally and like, with I it. totally cried at the end. All the girls I were with, we all cried when they're singing. Uh, what's that song? Hold on for one more day. Yes. <laughs> like, like, and then even that was just so brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so. I, there, we don't get a lot of commercial successful entertainments like that, um, where everything clicks. And it's all grounded in character. The, the, the comedy rule, right? The best comedies are grounded in insecurity because you can identify with somebody who doesn't know what to do or is acting poorly. Right. Uh, because you can say, thank God it's not me. Or you can empathize having been there. And this one just, it leans into vulnerability in a way that makes you, um, I don't even know, not tense exactly, but it's... 
it's an almost joyful cringe comedy. Like you're happy when it goes wrong because at least that moment is over. <laughs> the tension is broken. Yeah. And then you get to watch the ensemble play each point, each each moment of discomfort, except for McCarthy, who has none. Right. Um, and that, I think that's the key. I think I mean, it's clearly why she broke out with this film. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just so ferocious and unapologetic and disarming and and totally fearless yeah and right most of the yeah. time that was the thing that surprised me is that, oh no she's kind of the secret hero of this movie totally. she is, she's going to save people yeah when she's sort of slapping around Kristen wig and being like come on suck it up it's like so funny because it's so right and i, I don't know if it's just I kind of feel like in every group of women who have, we, you kind of have a couple of friends like that. Mm-hmm. And you almost wish you could be like Melissa McCarthy's character, that that honest, to be like, come on, wake up. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, Last month I saw Bruce McCullough interview Paul Feig uh, on stage at, at Toronto Sketchfest. And, oh, and they wow. went through his entire filmography, show by show, movie by movie. And with this one, he said that uh, it was finding McCarthy... And understanding that she could say literally anything because she wouldn't back away from it. Right. That was the key to the character, is that she could swear whenever she wanted to. She can incorporate vulgarity. I think the way he put it was, it's melodic. It becomes an aria when she starts swearing because you can see her gearing up. It's in the eyes. And then it, they said they, they basically, they didn't have to rewrite the film. And, and it's important to note that she's not in the diarrhea scene. Like, that's really important to him structurally is that that scene happens between Wig and Maya Rudolph and they carry that moment without her just to sort of prove that McCarthy's character is a supporting role. Right. But she's a satellite, is how he put it. She keeps orbiting the story and every time she comes back in, people just get so happy. Right. Because (laughs) she's the wild card. And what amazed me watching it again was how many moving parts there are and how many distinctive character beats they all get. I mean, even... The the moment where my favorite joke in the whole film is that Rose McGowan would consider Labrador Retriever puppies party favors uh, <laughs> because they are the, they're the most adorable thing in the world and they stop the room dead. Like the audience awed every time one of those dogs showed up right uh, to the punchline driving away and yeah. all of it just, ah, they would bubble up in the theater. But that's totally in line with her character as it's been defined, which is even better. There's just an element of um, lucidity to the writing that... that Wig and, and Annie Mumolo understand everybody, mm-hmm. and that makes them able to pick them apart. That gives them the window in that lets them exploit all of these things. Uh, and for Wig to just play to her own strengths, which is that weird, quiet anxiety that becomes insanity right. so easily you don't even notice. <laughs> Sorry, I monologued there. Um, it's all theory. No, it's true. All I love, I love that out. insight. But how um, how does it play? How many, I mean, do you revisit it? Do you, do you pick it apart? Are you... I don't know that I pick it apart, but one of the things that I do watch is like, I'll watch it just to watch it because I'm mm. bored and it'll cheer me up. But sometimes <laughs> I watch it to see the, uh, what they're doing to hit the comedy. How are they finding the comedy? And like with each one of them, their comedy is so different and it's like, where how did they come up with that choice how did they it's sort of like it, it can be like a master class in comedy acting especially for women mm-hmm. uh because for women i found 
when I do comedy, the sort of nastier I allow myself to be, the funnier it is. Like, I played a truly crazy character on Less Than Kind, and when we were shooting... I was shooting in Winnipeg. I'm originally from Manitoba, and I knew a lot of the crew, but one of the camera people said, you know, if I didn't know you, Tammy, I'd punch you in the face. And I was like, at first I was like, kind of offended. And then I was like, thank you (laughs) for doing my job. I'm like, if that bothered you, then it's going to be really awesome. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's something that's always made made me wonder about how you shoot comedy. How do you know it's working if everyone's silent because they don't want to spoil the taste? It's tough, man. Yeah. When, you don't, when you don't hear laughs in an audition or on set and you just hear crickets, it's like, yeah, it's funny. Um, it's tough because like I've worked on a couple of different ones. Sometimes they laugh. So you you get that because with comedy I especially I feel like the, the more they laugh the crazier I'm going to go the further I'm going to go with it right but if it's crickets I'm kind of like ooh a little tense in it so yeah that's interesting yeah. Um, when I worked and I know from like Judd Apatow he throws out a lot of lines that he'll improv he'll be like try this try that try that and the alts they call them they're just constant strip right. every DVD is filled with them and there's I think in the first one uh, the first time they did it was on uh, the 40 year old virgin and it's Seth Rogen standing off to the side throwing out alternate lines right. for Steve Carell he's in the scene he just knows he's not in the shot <laughs> and so he's firing them out but I'm, I'm sorry I interrupted um, well on Less Than Kind uh, th- I got the opportunity to do that. So they would throw stuff out, do this, just keep rolling, and the take would be going for 10, 15 minutes, and you just stayed in it and had a little fun. How do you keep the energy up? Because um, that would terrify me, just knowing... Well, that- well, it was interesting because I didn't expect it. I didn't know it was going to happen. That's okay. the first time it kind of had. Um, so I just went with it because I didn't really have a choice. But when I worked on a different show, J-Pod, they had, like, Red Bull, like, everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, like, keeping the energy up. And I made the mistake of um, there was this root beer-flavored energy drink in my trailer. I I love root beer. So I'm like, sure, I'll try this. So I drank it. And I'd never had it before. And then I get onto set, and I'm under all the lights. I just start to sweat. And I'm, like, (laughs) melting Away. That's what you People want. are like, what has happened to you? And I'm like, I had the drink. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the performance had an air of desperation and panic that you don't often see. I mean, that can be fun too. <laughs> I'm like, but how red is my face getting? Is it slowly working its way up? <laughs> <laughs> the thing about a comedy that breaks it out, I think that the the chemistry, the, the cast is one thing. The idea that there's a role that is perfect for somebody, that's one thing. The the breakout of the star, I mean, these are all pieces that have happened in other individual comedies. I'm trying to think if there's ever been another one where they all happened in the same movie besides Broad, uh, Bridesmaids. You know, mm-hmm. Julia Roberts was already a star when she made My Best Friend's Wedding and they had that Rupert Everett breakout. Um, Kristen Wiig had done supporting roles, but I don't think she'd made a movie of this scale before. She'd certainly never written one. Uh, I had met her the year before, a couple of years before, I guess, when Ghost Town came through. Tiff, she was, so that would have been the f- September of 2008, and she has a tiny role. She's got two scenes with Ricky Gervais. She plays a, an anesthesiologist, I think, 
who tells him that he was clinically dead and just refuses to admit culpability. And that was her whole bit. That was the one joke they brought her in for. And she kills it. She's great. Right. But she came in and did this round of, of interviews that were all about Saturday Night Live, as mm-hmm. though nobody really cared too much because she was a small role in this film and everybody was more focused on Ricky Gervais and they weren't interested in anybody else. There was this weird tone in the room that they were this round table was ready to dismiss her and talk about something else. They Once she said she wasn't sure she'd be playing Sarah Palin, um, which ended up being uh, Tina Fey, Tina. although I don't think anybody knew that at the time. Right. She said she probably wasn't going to be doing it, and then nobody was interested in any questions. So wow. there was more, and I asked her a couple of things about motivation and performance, because that's my go-to, and there was just no room to talk about anything else. And then a couple of years later, she comes up with this, and suddenly she's an A-lister, and everybody wants well, to work with her. she really stood out for me and knocked up. Because hmm. I was like, who is this person? She's just ridiculous. Ridiculously hilarious. Oh, that's right. She's the, in the, the assistant, she's right? She's the, the one assistant, who, and she's like, we want you yeah, I have no that. idea why you got this job. <laughs> oh, yeah. She, to me, like, totally for knocked up. She stole that movie. Yeah. I think. I'm trying to think of who Michael, my breakout was. It might have been Ken Jeong um, in... as, the, as the obstetrician. He shows up. He's got one scene, I think, towards the very end. Oh, yeah. But I remember Wig now. Now that you mention it. Yeah, it's weird. She's she's also a fantastic utility player. Like in stuff like The Martian, she disappears into the role and you don't think this is a comic actor. She's just an actor, mm-hmm. which is why I think she works in Bridesmaids, too. She fulfills the dramatic aspects of the role even before the comic stuff starts. You know, she establishes herself as as um, slightly uncentered and unmoored and, and angry in a way that never really surfaces until the very end. And then just... The joke of the movie is that she's constantly trying to pretend she's not. Right. That she's well-adjusted and, and comfortable with everything. And that first scene with John Hamm, uh, just to establish both of their, like, sort of their comedic bona fides, I, I knew he was funny. I had heard of his days doing stuff at Largo before Mad Men happened, but just the idea that he would be willing to go back and do that again at a point where his star was probably the highest... Right. Is, is I was amazing. really surprised by him in that movie because I was totally unfamiliar that he'd done any comedy and definitely to go from Mad Men, this suave, dark, sophisticated guy to this total douchebag. Yeah. You know? yeah. But like, I think a really smart career choice. Yeah. Because otherwise he could just be stuck in playing that thing. Yeah. I suspect that a lot of people... I think, you know, I think Feig and Wig reached out to a lot of people that they knew had that other side to them, that they could call on them. Ellie Kemper, who I think at that point had only really been on The Office, right. uh, but is amazing. Wendy McClendon-Covey, who is this amazing lifer. Rose Byrne, who somehow, I love the fact that she's on the cover as though she is part of it when she's actually <laughs> the enemy of the film. Um, but they didn't, by the time the... the uh, but I think by the time the marketing was, was happening, nobody cared. They knew that they could just put these people together mm-hmm. and they could get away with whatever depiction they wanted. And on the cover and the poster, everybody is doing a character trope and at the same time subverting it. It's as though they've all been asked how their characters would front for this picture. And it just radiates. It's one of those rare posters that get funnier after you see it. Totally. Uh, after you see the movie because you just you get an extra laugh out of it. And that's... 
as long as Bridesmaids can be in the longer cut, it's like two and a quarter hours, I think. It just goes on and it doesn't matter because there's just more. It's like eating it's like eating a whole wedding cake. It's, <laughs> you, you feel a little tired afterwards, but not bad. Uh, so how often do you? I mean, you mentioned you go back to it whenever you need to pick me up. Do you watch the whole movie? Do you watch pieces? Do you have favorite scenes? If it's on TV, I'll be hooked. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what point in the movie it is. It could be almost like right at the very end. I'll be like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's got to be, uh, there is this, I'm trying to figure out how to sound intelligent and not unconsciously sexist about it. There is this expectation that these movies are only for women, that they will not do well, that they can be discounted before they even come out. Uh, that's the girl movie that comes out in May as counter-programming to the Fast and the 17th or whatever else it is, the one where they go into space, whatever. The, um, you can make a Forgetting Sarah Marshall, you can make a Notting Hill, you can have a female star, but it still has to be about the guy. And Bridesmaids now, what is it, six years later, is looking increasingly like a one-off. They, they haven't found a way to replicate it to anyone's satisfaction. There are women-centered comedies, but... Again, it's still like I don't think it changed anything, and I want to know why. I'm curious because this should have sparked, if not a revolution, then at least a reorientation of priorities. I think like they they try, they are trying because since Bridesmaids, for sure, there's Tammy, mm-hmm. which still isn't primarily. But then there's the is it the Heat with Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy, right? Which made which a lot of money. I personally really loved that movie, and it was about the two of them and their relationship. So I think that they're trying, but unfortunately, the studios still believe that women can't get people in to these theaters. Yeah. Well, Fig was talking about that in his in his conversation with McCullough as well, the backlash against Ghostbusters, you know, another the reunion of those two leads, who Ed McCarthy is now the lead, which is even better because she's just yeah, she's magnificent and I will watch her in anything and I think yeah, um, absolutely. St. Vincent is proof of that. But but something like Spy comes out and does reasonably well in the US and better I think it actually made more money worldwide. It's it's frustrating to watch people dismiss them before they open because that poisons the well in a weird way. And Ghostbusters, I, I, I hope, was a one-time thing where people just shat all over the concept of I it. I couldn't even believe the backlash surrounding that. It's like, how is it that bad yeah, <laughs> to do this? Yeah, and it was this? before it even came out. Before yeah. anyone knew what it was, whether it would be a straight remake, whether it would be a follow-up. No one had any idea how it was going to be presented, let alone what it, what quality of that presentation would be. And people were just furious about the idea that. Absolutely. I don't. I still don't understand it. I. Um, I like it. I think it's. I think it's a perfectly entertaining movie that builds in its own sort of bulletproof armor about that by having the villain be. Uh, a sneery, superioristic asshole who only talks to himself and doesn't engage with women. That like They sort of short-circuited it without even knowing it. But uh, somehow, yeah, even now, there's still this sense, you know, like the Black Widow can't get her own movie at Marvel, even though Scarlett Johansson repeatedly demonstrates box office power and Marvel can't go wrong. The, it's not just comedies. There's this, this, gener- this, this larger fear in the industry... And now I'm not asking you to have the answer. If you've got one, that would be great. <laughs> but there is this larger sense within the industry that 
everything is in a panic. The only things that make money are gargantuan movies that are already blockbusters. And even those... Or action right. movies. Yeah. Uh, stuff that you can sell internationally. Stuff that doesn't have to be grounded in an original concept, because those are terrifying. Yeah, anything that already exists, let's make more of that. Uh, I would assume that if, if Wig and Mumolo wanted to do a, Bradway, a Bridesmaid sequel, they could do that, because that's a known quantity now, and it's proven success. But we're just in this place where no one will take a risk on anything. The mid-range movie is disappearing. The yeah. idea of a sleeper is gone. I think that I think that's one of the biggest problems is that they're making these massive budget movies so they have to in some way ensure that they're going to make their money back so we're going to go with the safe thing which is generally men leading the movies and I think that what they should start doing is bringing back the movies that are between a 1 to 3 to $5 million budget and start taking more chances and seeing what happens. Because we are, we are going for these really low budget indie movies that don't really get seen because they don't have any money for marketing and or name talent to then just giant blockbusters and or action thrillers. So there's a big gap in between. But what I think is really cool is that women in the industry are taking charge of that and they're creating their own content. Like Reese Witherspoon, for example. Uh, a couple of She's made a couple of really great movies through her production company and yeah. now Big Little Lies, which is... I binge-watched that, I think, in two nights. <laughs> I was just like, women want to see this and these women get to be bad women because... Like, and it sort of ties into Menorca because my character's not a perfect or a good mom. And we want to see that because that's real life. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder if that's going to be the answer um, like on a larger scale. If, if dissatisfaction comes back, that sort of 90s indie drift thing that happened for a while when you could pre-sell a movie on DVD or before DVD on VHS rights alone and make a film for a couple of million dollars... The, the problem is that those movies now get picked up by a streaming service and they get locked in there forever. And so they're a single tile amongst all the other ones. Right. Um, the competition has become, yeah, you need to have a, a breakout. You need to have a Bridesmaids where you can point to that. And, and just from the title, everybody knows what you're talking about. Right. Um, Menorca is opening theatrically, right? And then, is it on VOD at the same time, or is it... No, it's going to VOD in May, I think. Okay, so that's a window. That's good. That, yeah. That means the ads are there, that people hear well, about it. Well, one of the things I think, too, is that people are just... People are scared to take chances, and that's a big part of it, but I think they're also scared to wait. Mm. So that if a movie... You make a movie, and then Netflix approaches you, you're like, yeah, absolutely, then people are going to see it, but... I think that sometimes it pays to be patient and at least try and get a little buzz and into some festivals and then more people will see the movie and or maybe get some press and then people will then look for it on VOD or Netflix, et cetera, instead of it just kind of going right there. Yeah. And I guess part of that is just constant stumping too. You know, hey, I made a movie. There's this thing. You should come and see it or you should be aware of it. And I guess maybe that's what they're counting on now. Social media driving awareness as opposed to advertising because advertising is expensive. And unless you have a telephone deal, nobody wants to do that. Right. Um, it's just, 
boy, the days when the major studios could just put stuff out in 6,000 <laughs> screens and make you go. Those were good days. <laughs> Those were good days. Everybody had the same thing to talk about. Yeah. It was great. Um, but the, well, I mean, in terms of romantic comedies and, and films being, films that have a little more depth to them, there's, I guess I should stop referring to Bridesmaids as a romantic comedy because it really isn't, is it? It's more about learning to leave someone than it is learning to fall for someone. If it's, if that's an arc at all, like she, that is why I thought of my best friend's wedding earlier. They're both films where the protagonist learns that she is her own worst enemy, but also her only way out. Like nobody saves her. There is there is the hint of a romantic thing, but that's not the core focus. Nobody remembers that plot. Yeah, I agree. And if it and if there's any sort of romantic story, I believe I kind of feel like it's more between the two women because they break up mm-hmm. and then they get back together. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it is, and it's played with that level of like emotional intelligence that says even though the most ridiculous things are happening. And people are beating each other up and having horrific moments in sitting in public places, uh, which Fig actually said was was the second idea. The first idea was to have an explosion, uh, a diarrhea explosion in a in a pristine white bathroom, with just a fountain. They had basically built a cannon that there was that was going oh, to fire something out, oh, and they man. shot it, and, or they tested it, one or the other, and they realized that it would be too horrible. You just couldn't right. do it. You couldn't recover from that. Yeah, I agree. It's like a lot of the times it's not seeing it and just letting your own imagination play it out that makes it so much worse. And that's that's what makes a good horror movie, I sure. think. As yeah. soon as you show the scary thing, then it's not as scary anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, well, showing diarrhea is never a good idea. No. As we've learned from Trainspotting. Well, it works in Trainspotting. <laughs> and it definitely is a one-off. There's yeah. a lot of cleaning. <laughs> it's like if this doesn't work, well. That's true. You can't <laughs> Light, but uh, but yeah. Sorry, I derailed that again. Uh, the um, the idea of them playing their relationship straight is actually the thing that makes the movie moving. It's yeah. why we care. I think. Absolutely, I think I totally agree. Without emotional investment in someone in the movie, you you're like okay. Yeah, and it wouldn't be so bad if she wrecked the wedding of someone we didn't care about. Like, that would be the other thing. It becomes a revenge movie instead of a... Yes, uh, and it's also not intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's her thing. She can't get out of her own way. She can't right. see it. Um, and the whole movie is about her eyes opening. And again, Wig and Mumolo are smart enough not to have a scene where there's a speech. There are moments, there are hints of realization, but there is there's no cringing... You know, I just need me scene. There, we see it. We see it in the cupcake sequence. She is her own best support as well right. as her own worst enemy. Yeah. But it's yeah. Oh, it's just. And fun. I love that. I love. I love that. Visually, we see it and feel it, and we're not told it. Yeah. So it's just. I think they realize that the audience is a lot smarter. Yeah. Well, I mean, this film absolutely does. Yeah. Um, you can you can point to. And I think Apatow gets a bad rap for the for the broadness of it as a producer that he sort of encourages people to go bigger, mm-hmm. but he also gives the movies room to breathe and have the humanity that make them memorable. Like the reason Knocked Up plays is because both of the leads are idiots in their own way. Uh, one of them is just more obvious about it, and the reason that his films, his television series, that like he was smart enough to trust Feig with Freaks and Geeks and and Undeclared and all the things that led to Bridesmaids where he is where Feig is a filmmaker smart enough to get out of the movie's way 
and encourage the actors to do what they already do best and trust that that chemistry will play out. I mean, it's a weird irony that the films, that all of Melissa McCarthy's best films are directed by men, but I guess that's also an indication that there is, there has yet to be a female filmmaker that the studio will trust with a hundred million dollar picture that is a comedy that is this I mean I can think of half it like Lynn Shelton would be amazing uh, <laughs> Lorene Scafaria who made Seeking a Friend for the End of the World and The Meddler she'd be great I, I have no doubt that these people can engineer a big movie especially since so much of those things are structure based anyway and they're crews to set up the big action sequences the big chase sequences you can concentrate on as with the Marvel's the Marvel films have proven you can concentrate on the characters if you want to right um, and that uh, I don't even know who's directing Ocean's 8, which is the one that just occurred to me. This is the, right. the female that's... action movie that's coming, or the female heist movie. Right. That Yeah, that has a pretty phenomenal cast. Yeah. It's interesting when you think about comedy and movies, I, like, I can't think of many female directors. Gary Ross. Gary Ross. Yeah, the man who made Pleasantville and, well, oh, the Free State of Jones. Oof. <laughs> But yeah, that's where we are. A Hunger Games guy, the man who made the first Hunger Games movie, is directing the Oceans, the, the all-women Oceans remake, which feels like maybe somebody's that's, nervous. That's going to be interesting because there's so many big names and seeing how they kind of gel and come together, that chemistry, which is versus Bridesmaids, who was the biggest name in this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like they cast based on, and I think maybe Christian Wigg and her writing partner probably wrote for a specific people, which is why I think he could just get out of their way and let them do their thing, and it all came together. Mm-hmm. And trust that, yeah, and, and I would assume that within a few minutes, the test screenings would have proven them out. If they had advanced screenings, people would have, they would have known they had a hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even test footage would hopefully encourage people. But, yeah, I mean, like, what would it be like to see Melissa McCarthy doing the, just the bit on the airplane with her actual husband uh, for the first time? Not knowing <laughs> I can't you. even imagine some of the outtakes. Like, I've seen some of the outtakes, but yeah. I can't even imagine, like, some of the stuff. And being someone there, another actor there, um, when you're with somebody that knows comedy, that's committed... It can be so challenging to just stay in the scene. Yeah. Um, I I did one of the first comedy shows I did was versus Alan Thicke. And like that was a big learning experience because on his coverage, I sometimes would be like, (laughs) I have to look away or I'm going to break out laughing. Like just so committed and so funny. Um, but yeah, like what a blast that would have been to make yeah. for sure. Have you had this sense of that, uh, with an ensemble when it's, you're not just standing on the other side of the camera clicks. when you're in the, when you're in the moment, when you're in the scene, is it the kind of thing that, I mean, is it the kind of thing that television even allows for? Cause everything has to be so exacting. It's uh, television's tough because it's so quick. And unless you're one of the main cast one of the series regs Mm -hmm. you're a visitor usually you know like so you come in you do your week or whatever it is your couple of days and then you're gone um so sometimes you go to shows and you see the chemistry that they have in a good way (laughs) and sometimes in a bad way um but 
uh, I was talking earlier that I was on Once Upon a Time and I got to experience a couple of the characters there and see like the love they had for each other. And so they were so generous to one another, which um, you, pays off, I think, when you're watching it. Yeah. Well, you can... The, the, the appeal... Everybody keeps saying that the reason television shows land is because they're people you want to invite into your house. You're already home. They're there with you. So you either want to be with them or you want to be them. And the families that form in procedurals, the families that form in sitcoms, are the things that people bond to the most ferociously, which is why every CW superhero show is about the family that gathers around the hero, and every uh, CSI is about the eccentric two or three characters that help the serious professionals, because it's, oh, I'm like that guy, or I'm like that guy. Everybody needs an identification point. Right. But... Yeah, I don't. I I'm. I don't have anybody I'd identify. I'd want to identify with in bridesmaids, and I'm fine <laughs> with that. I don't need to. Uh, which is the other thing that that comes back about the Ghostbusters backlash. That uh, there were so many essays written about it last year, and the the thing that I kept coming back to in the tone of the angrier ones, and I had a couple of arguments with people online about it, was that by casting the the roles as women, by making the roles of of the heroes exclusively women. I can't identify with any of them. I, as a man, feel excluded. Hmm. And I I just... This isn't virtue signaling or anything or whatever they accused me of. But what's wrong with watching people you aren't? What's wrong with identifying with somebody else for a while or yeah. making the effort to wonder what it's like? I mean... Or just to be entertained. <laughs> yeah. I've never been in the situation of bridesmaids. I've never been in any of those roles. But I loved watching it because it's funny. Like, right. it's human, and it's funny, and it's... What, this just popped into my head, Please. is that maybe men could relate to one of the two or three male characters. You know? I can They're never the... be John Hamm. John Hamm? I can never be <laughs> or, John Or, you know, the lovable uh, cop that's sort of, you know, average and nice. Sure. Uh, I have, uh... Chris O'Dowd, who is wonderful. Yeah, he's, uh, he was so good. And I was not familiar with him at all before oh. Bridesmaids. And oh, so you got to discover the IT I crowd. was just like, who is this guy? He's so charming and lovable and funny and... Yeah. Goofy. <laughs> and that's the kind of generosity in the film that I that I was thinking about is that every single role is cast with someone who is interesting and funny. Even when they're playing a straightish role, they're they trust the material enough. Apatow and Feig and, and Wig and, and Mumolo all know that this person can handle it. So it doesn't matter that people maybe don't know Chris O'Dowd. I, I was a fan of the IT crowd, so as soon as he showed up, it's like, oh, they know who he is. Look at him <laughs> in a big movie. Uh, or, or Rose Byrne, who hadn't done a lot of comedy no. to that point and is now a monster. I, yes. she, um, Feig was talking about her as in, in Spy as the secret ingredient, and she's absolutely the, the most interesting thing in a film filled with people who are having the best time mm -hmm. being in this movie. And I think that's to, to Wig and Mumolo's credit that they figured it out for this role, that she could do it and be kind of a frenemy and kind of an actual adversary, but also be unreadable. Like the whole, the appeal of that character is that I really couldn't tell until the very end whether she was coming at it from that mean girl position or from a point of insecurity or, or just what was going on in any given moment. Where did, like, again, where did the puppies come from? Who has that thought? <laughs> but the movie is over and she does. That's who that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the, the generosity of spirit in that film is so great. And maybe that's why it hit more than any of the other ones. Yeah. And I feel like, for bridesmaids, I feel like 
it was almost like a bunch of friends that came together to support our one friend and make a good movie. Yeah. Versus, I feel like Ghostbusters felt like it had a lot to prove. And one of the things for me in Ghostbusters is that I feel like the level of the different characters in terms of like the level of the comedy i don't feel like it reached a common ground oh, yeah. i felt like some were just like super super big and some were not as big and so it felt like a little disjointed to me it didn't have quite the same flow actually that answers a couple of things that i that had been bugging me about it it's true that um i will watch kate mckinnon stand still in that movie because everything she does is amazing but it is always but sometimes thing, right? it pulls like it's, focus. Yeah, it's isolated within the movie. Yeah. And not that that's a negative thing for that character. That's probably how Holtzman would act. You know, like she is in her own world the whole time. But once you twig to her, you only want to look at her. And if she's in the frame, yeah, she pulls. And and Wig starts off with sort of a withdrawn and quiet and angry, and that has to go away over the course of the movie. But it, yeah, the 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 notes don't always line up. It's not I symphonic. Just, I just, I felt like she just was like on all the time and like super funny all the time. But that's for Melissa McCarthy's character. She has her moments. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I I feel like sort of you have to earn those moments instead of just hitting them over the head over and over and over again. Like narratively, you have to get to the point. Yeah. Yeah. And like I really wanted to love Ghostbusters because there's so many amazing women in it. And I love the original movies. Um, But I was a little disappointed just because I did feel like it just didn't have that flow. Hmm. I wonder. I'm, now I want to look at it again again. <laughs> uh, which brings us to our our closing question of, is there anything of Bridesmaids that you have borrowed or stolen outright or incorporated into your own creative DNA? Have you found yourself using it? What's interesting is that before I directed a web series... Uh, a couple, about a year and a half ago now, two years almost, mm-hmm. I watched a lot. I watched Bridesmaids over and over again, watching the shots, seeing how the women played and landed the jokes. Um, and so as a director, I really stole sort of some shot ideas from that. Definitely as an actor, uh, I've stolen or tried to uh, steal some things, but also just seeing how brave they are in a lot of it and just really committing and going for it is something that I have to try to remember to commit to in my own acting. And also, partly what I think is funnier, and especially for acting, is it's not the dialogue that's always funny, it's the reaction to it. So I know that whenever I'm doing comedy, it's really making myself pay attention to what's being said and then having a reaction to it. And right. that's what makes it funny. Right. Well, there's that whole rule, right? And you can, you can be someone who says funny things or someone who says things funny. Right. And I've always found that I'm more interested in watching the rest of the performance instead of just hitting the line. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's exactly... That's, that's my sweet spot for comedy as well is watching people interact in a way that's amusing as opposed to just waiting their turn right so as a as a director how did you find the experience um how do you manage comedy it was i had a great time directing it's i'd never directed before i've just sort of 
pulled off of all my years of acting and <laughs> thought, okay, I'm going to read some books on directing. Let's see if I can pull this off. Um, I had a couple of girls that were quite funny. And then I had other girls because it was a, a, a web series about this. Well, it was about a support group, but the th- there were three leads. Um, so when I would direct and I wouldn't find a funny moment, it would, I would just constantly say over and over again, really listen to what she's saying and then decide how that affects you before you respond. Um, because some people, and one of the things that uh, so many people are like, everybody thinks comedy is just fast, 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 hit the joke, hit the joke, go, 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 go. And I'm like, I'm completely, I don't agree. I'm like, you have, we have to let it see, see it land. Yeah. on your character because Melissa McCarthy would not be as funny if the people reacting opposite her weren't experiencing something like the scene with her husband when she gets up to go to the bathroom and like she puts her leg up and his like his face is just priceless and like that's what makes it so funny yeah no it's true and and even the way she reacts to information by just getting by deciding to get more hostile yeah is its own running gag <laughs> yeah. in that well in everything now because it's her her greatest asset as a as a an actor is that as a comic presence is that there is no top she'll just keep going yeah <laughs> uh, and just you know like watching her come into her own on on that saturday night live gig that she's got for oh, life i assume wow that's yes. The closest character she's played, I think, two bridesmaids because they're they're both rooted in that weird projection of authority and trying to shout people down when you really don't have any power. <laughs> but just the idea that you can bluster your way through anything. Yeah. Yeah. God help us all. <laughs> My thanks to Tammy Gillis, whose new film Menorca is on screens in Toronto and Winnipeg right now and available for pre-order on iTunes with a release date of May 9th. And that web series she just mentioned is called The Support Group. You can find all six episodes of it on YouTube see if you can find the bridesmaids references make a game of it you can find tammy on twitter at real tammy gillis all one word and you can find bridesmaids on blu-ray and dvd from universal studios home entertainment it's also available for sale and rental on itunes and google play and streaming on netflix canada if you've never watched the extended version you check that out sometime as always you can find me on twitter at norm wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com you can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Don't forget to take a puppy on your way out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>